G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. And we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. And we don't ask for much in return, though we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast or wherever you're listening to this and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, and we'd greatly appreciate a few moments of your time to be able to do that. So we're back in our virtual studio. So joining Brian and myself, we're delighted to have uh, two people with us. So Sarah Taylor, who is one of our internal medics here at the RVC, and Jody Green, who's one of our residents in internal medicine at the RVC. And we thought we'd talk about um, feline infectious peritonitis and also the, the new treatments that are available. So thank you both very much for, for joining us. Thank you for having us, Dom. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Well, my pleasure. Our pleasure. Um, so maybe I could could ask uh, either one or both of you. So, um, so, so if we if we go back to the start, so so what is um, feline infectious peritonitis? So I guess um, FIP is um, very topically a coronavirus, feline coronavirus, um, and. Um, it's it's actually quite a kind of ubiquitous virus. Um, lots of cat, cats will get infected um, with feline enteric coronavirus. Um, but I guess the key there is that generally it stays enterically, so in the gut. Um, might cause some mild gastrointestinal signs um, in, in the majority of cats, um, but then they will clear the infection um, and hopefully the majority never get any problems from it. Um, however, in a small proportion of cats um, the virus mutates um, and is able to move away from the intestine and infect macrophages um, and that mutation is what kind of converts it into the feline infectious peritonitis virus um, and I guess that's when we get our kind of FIP symptoms and the whole FIP kind of disease entity um, I, I guess when you kind of start thinking about how does kind of the same mutation happen in all of these cats to kind of cause the same mutation to allow it into macrophages. It's um, it, it's a little bit mind-boggling and a bit confusing. Um, but um, I guess that's probably a, a, a whole separate um thing to think about. Um, but yeah, it's the it's the mutation of the virus that goes on to cause the kind of clinical disease. And so, Sarah, in, in um cats that get this, uh, in in general, so so as a um the the normal coronavirus, if you, if you like, what what clinical signs do they they show, and and is that any different from if if they get the I suppose the FIP version? Yeah, so the the kind of enteric coronavirus, um, I guess a lot of cats probably show no clinical signs whatsoever. Um, maybe some cats will show some very mild gastrointestinal signs, but very much self limiting, um, and that's. Um, kind of um, very different to um, I guess if we get the mutation and get the um, FIP um, forming those cats generally are, are pretty sick um, it can kind of vary from quite chronic presentations um, to acute presentations and the presentation depends somewhat on what form of disease we get with FIP um, which is kind of dependent on the on the host's immune response so if we get a kind of partial cell mediated response to the virus um, then we get more of the dry form of FIP um, so that's where we get 
high granulomatous inflammation so neutrophilic macrophagic inflammation kind of causing these tiny little pyogranulomas to form in in multiple different organs kind of all over the body whether that be liver kidney cns intestine uh, eyes anywhere really um those cases maybe present a bit more chronically um kind of waxing and waning pyrexia non-responsive to antibiotics hyperexia maybe a bit of weight loss um i guess if we don't mount a good immune response at all then we get more of the wet form of fip forming um which is maybe the more typical one that we think of when we think of fip um so that's when we get kind of vasculitis and effusions um and those cats probably do present a bit more acutely particularly if you get pleural effusion a lot of times when we're talking about FIP the kind of classic that we think of is young pedigree kittens so if you've got a four-month-old pedigree kitten it doesn't really take much pleural effusion probably to make it clinical with that so those cats tend to produce kind of present more acutely um but I guess the key is that it really is a very wide spectrum of clinical signs um, that we can see with FIP. Um, and so we're then kind of relying on our other diagnostic tests. We can't really make the diagnosis then and there um, on the spot. Um, obviously, signalment is a big kind of a big factor um, in, in making our diagnosis because, as I said, pedigree young cats definitely more affected. Um, but, um, yeah, we, we absolutely need to do more testing to be sure of the diagnosis. So, Sarah, can I, can I ask with that, too, if we have young pedigree cats, um, are there – is that – it seems to be like the poster child of, of FIP, but but is there um, – can FIP affect any age of cats or, or do we just sort of see it in – in young pedigree cats? Yeah, no, absolutely can affect, I guess, any age, any breed. Um, there's very, very much a spike in cats under the age of one. Um, so the majority of cases we diagnose are in cats less than a year of age. Um, and again, probably the majority of cases, um, certainly that we've seen over the past nine months, um, have been pedigree. Uh, pedigree breeds um there does seem to be a little if you kind of look at literature and textbooks there seems to be a little spike maybe kind of around the 12 year plus mark um i guess the tricky thing is that other diseases might mimic fip so did those cats definitely 100% have FIP or did they have kind of neoplastic processes that might present very similar signs to FIP? It's hard to say. Um, I know that we've had um, kind of cases come through the hospital, though, where we're kind of struggling to figure out what's going on with this kind of seven, eight year old cat. And FIP is always on our list. But we think, oh, no, it couldn't possibly be because the cat's too old. And um, ultimately, that that is what ends up being the case. So um, obviously, it's, yeah, always on the list um, of differentials. Um, but if if I was presented with an older cat then I would just maybe want to kind of be really very sure that I had ruled out absolutely everything else before I got to that diagnosis. And, and so how, how do we actually diagnose this and, and why is it so difficult to diagnose? Yeah so um, I guess a lot of the time with FIP um, it's kind of forming as much of an argument for or against it Um, and I almost have a list of things in my head that I go through and kind of try and tick off to say yeah we've got so and so and uh, and that all fits. Um, Unfortunately the only kind of 
probably confirmatory tests that we have for FIP is post-mortem, um, which um, unfortunately when we were kind of unable to really robustly treat cats um, often was how we unfortunately made the diagnosis. But now that we have treatment available, um, obviously that is not a diagnostic test that we want to be using if at all possible. Um, so I guess there are some very classic biochemical findings that we might find with FIP. Um, so we can have um, very high globulins um, and low albumin, and we can use our albumin to globulin ratio. And if it's less than 0.6, then that can be very highly su kind of suspicious for FIP. Um, a lot of FIP cats will have a mild hyperbilirubinemia. Um, so again, if I saw a young kitten with waxing waning pyrexia, slightly hyperbilirubinemic, high globulins, that would increase my index of suspicion. Um, on our CBC, we often get a lymphopenia um, with FIP um, and possibly a non-regenerative anemia. Um, but I guess that kind of, those blood findings, although suggestive, again aren't confirmatory um if we have got effusions um then having a look at the nature of that effusion can be very helpful so um the kind of classic fip effusion that we get is quite thick straw colored often you'll get some fibrin clots coming through the needle um when you're draining it um those effusions tend to be highly proteinaceous um, but with relatively low cellularities in comparison to that protein um, and the the kind of classic that we would see on if we looked under the microscope would be neutrophilic and macrophagic inflammation um, so if I kind of had a young kitten that had that kind of effusion, looked it under the microscope and and it all fit and it had the kind of blood findings as well, um, that might be enough for me to kind of make the call. Um, the dry FIP is a little bit trickier and often we're kind of relying on imaging um, to see whether or not we've got any changes, kind of um, abdominal ultrasound. Often we might see that maybe some mesenteric lymph nodes are a bit enlarged. Sometimes we can see some kidney changes and we will often try and aspirate those and again look for that neutrophilic macrophagic inflammation. Um, and then I guess we've got some more specific um, FIP tests that we can maybe start doing. Um, so um, we will often send um, a kind of effusion off for um, either immunocytochemistry or PCR um, for um, feline um, coronavirus. Um, I guess the immunocytochemistry is probably my preference um, and so that is relying on kind of having enough macrophages in the sample um, to then be able to stain it um, for feeling coronavirus and if you find that there's coronavirus within macrophages in effusions um, or within kind of lymph node aspirates that would be pretty highly suggestive um, of FIP. Um, it does rely on there being enough macrophages though um, in the sample. Um, so if there aren't enough macrophages there, then um, PCR would be kind of suitable alternative. Would, would PCR though, so is, is part of the issue that because, um, I suppose it's endemic in the cat population and it's a, a response to this, would PCR get the, the I suppose, the type that causes uh, FIP of, of coronavirus? Um, unfortunately, it doesn't. Um, and so it's, it, yeah, I think the PCR, it 
in theory, it's it's kind of relatively sensitive, relatively specific um, for diagnosing FIP. Um, but because it will pick up kind of feline teric coronavirus, feline infectious peritonitis virus, um, I guess my concern is that if you if you had had kind of I don't know some translocation of the virus and it wasn't actually FIP it was just the feline teric coronavirus then it would still pick that up whereas on the immunocytochemistry at least you're kind of documenting it that it has invaded macrophages which is kind of the characteristic of that transformation to the 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 FIP virus um and there are there are other tests that we can do so um a lot of the time um we might run serology on these cats um again can't can't distinguish between FIP virus versus feline enteric coronavirus but we can do feline coronavirus antibody titers um, which might support our diagnosis of FIP. Um, interestingly if you um, the kind of infectious disease textbook um, that, that I use um, has this um, quite interesting sentence that says um, more cats possibly have been put to sleep based on a positive feline coronavirus tight antibody titer than have actually died with FIP. I don't know how much truth um, is behind that sentence, um, but um, it really does just stress the point that many, many, many cats will be exposed to feline coronavirus, um, but only a very small portion of them will go on to develop FIP. So just having a positive titer in itself um, is absolutely not confirmatory and so it might again kind of when we're when we're thinking about our making an argument for the diagnosis of FIP um, then it's it's one of the things that yep might support our diagnosis but I absolutely wouldn't make the diagnosis on that alone. And, and Sarah so, so obviously it's quite hard to diagnose and, and I suppose that the part of would you say like part of the reason to be um considered thorough in our approach to that is because i suppose what, what you know related to the mortality of fip and the treatments available so could you maybe sort of say what treatments are available and, and yeah what is the mortality um uh, historically as we've as we've known it with the treatments available yeah so um prior to well i think jody can correct me but august um 2021 um in in the uk we didn't have any treatment available really for fip um it was very much palliative care um we would often give these cases um kind of anti-inflammatory steroids um, in an attempt to maybe bring their temperature down um, and um, boost their appetite but most of the time that would be a very short-lived response Um, and so a lot of the time unfortunately we were having to put these cats to sleep Um, however um, as of um, summer last year um, we've had um, remdesivir available um, which is a drug that was um, kind of developed for using COVID-19 patients so I guess it's maybe one good thing to come from the COVID pandemic um, that it's a coronavirus and so there's been obviously a, a lot of efforts in human medicine into looking into different treatments and drugs available that might um, help treat it and I guess subsequent to that we've um, we've had these um, human products maybe um, become available to us um, for use so remdesivir became available in in summer of last 
year um and that's really kind of revolutionized our our treatment of these cases um so, so could you tell me sarah what remdesivir is and, and maybe how it works please yeah so remdesivir is kind of an antiviral drug um that it works by um, kind of interfering with viral RNA synthesis um, and stopping the virus being able to replicate. And um, and so is, is this the same as um, GS44, 15, 24, or are there similarities to that? Yeah, so remdesivir is kind of the, the parent drug to um, GS44. 441524 I guess we can maybe call it GS for the remainder of the of the talk um to save some breath for the, for both of us but um yeah remdesivir is converted to GS um in the body and the initial studies that were done with cats were all um have been done with GS um and um showed kind of great success um but um it was not commercially available to us um and so then when remdesivir was um developed for humans um i think a lot of people immediately thought oh well this is um potentially handy for us um with cats um subsequently since then um we actually have gs available as well as remdesivir so we've got both products available now for cats in the uk so what what was the so was the delay um getting it in the uk because I suppose you said so some places looked at, at this drug in particular and, and using that for um for FIP so was it that we just couldn't was it more to do with our um drug re- related <laughs> the, the authority sorry the um related to drug use in the, in the UK rather than um like access to it so I guess um my understanding was that um, it was probably kind of being almost conserved for human use um, and um, people were getting hold of GS um, kind of on the black market. Um, so um, there, there were still kind of people able to get hold of GS but it wasn't regulated um, and as vets we weren't really able to kind of um, prescribe or recommend that treatment um, given it was not a kind of veterinary formulated product um, unsure on the kind of efficacy uh, efficacy safety of that product Um, and so I think it was only when um, Bovra in Australia um, managed to um, kind of formulate the the human remdesivir and GS for cats um, and started having some great successes that um, that then kind of filtered on um, to the UK. Um, and so um, we then have had, um, as I say, the remdesivir and GS available for the past about nine months now. So I think it's also worth saying that um, so all the previous studies that have been done on remdesivir and GS were all on unlicensed drugs so particularly in America um Niels Peterson particularly has done some studies on 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 these drugs and um yeah the the studies were done on unlicensed drugs at the time and and was it unlicensed because it was um sort of of like an experimental drug and they were seeing sort of how effective it would it would it would be was that the the kind of idea about it yeah so a little bit I think also um the pharmaceutical company that was producing um GS and remdesivir um declined veterinary license and um, so that was kind of part of it um and 
yeah and then as as, as Sarah was saying subsequently um, through its kind of licensing for human use with COVID-19 patients we've then um, been able to access it um, from that side of things. And and so with regards to I, I realise it's it's very um, expensive so you, is there a reason behind that is that because it's a newly patented drug and it's expensive to manufacture is that and so I think some of it as well for example in the UK was even being able to kind of um, access it and get it into the UK I think was has, has been part of the kind of initial costs particularly with remdesivir and and so you see now it's a, a, available as in we can use remdesivir but but is um I, I assume there's no like VMD license in the in the UK for its use for for this in in cats is that Yeah, so we're kind of using it on the cascade. So um, it's human formulation that Bova have um, kind of formulated um, and so that it's available in kind of injectable um, for remdesivir and oral um, use um, for um, cats. But say kind of as per the cascade, it's it's a human drug that we have no other alternative. Um, So that's how we're able to use it. And so, and so clinically, when we administer this, so if you, we think we have a cat with with FIP, um, and we're going to start treatment of this, how, how do we how do we start that, and what sort of expectations do you um, uh, explain to, to to the owners about um, the use of this drug? Which I suppose, like even, um, you know, I'm sure globally, there's there's been quite a lot of use, but I suppose in the in the UK, there's probably not not the same experience of of this. Yeah, I think, um, so essentially when we only had remdesivir available, which is injectable, um, what we were doing was five days of injections intravenously um, and um, we were seeing marked clinical responses within about 48 to 72 hours of starting treatment. Um, One thing just to note is that um, one thing that we were warned from kind of colleagues in Australia that might happen, um, which we certainly did see happen, is that when you start treatment, um, some cats, their effusions appear to get worse for about 22 to 48 hours. Um, So we've just been keeping a really close eye on cats, um, particularly the ones with pleural effusions, to see whether or not they might need repeat thoracentesis in that first 48 hours. But then beyond that kind of 48 to 72 hour point, what we've been seeing is that kittens that have looked incredibly unwell, hyperexic, persistently pyrexic, potentially kind of in oxygen kennels with pleural effusions, suddenly their effusions are reducing without us needing to drain them. They're looking more kitten-like, their pyrexia resolves, they're starting to eat. So the the kind of treatment response can be dramatic um, in those first few days. Um, and when we just had the remdesivir, remdesivir available, what we were then recommending was subcut injections for a total of 12 weeks. Um, and again, this is all kind of based on anecdotal um, information that we've had from colleagues in Australia that have had these drugs available for much longer than we have. Um, and we've had um, kind of a few cats complete that course um, of 12 weeks that have done remarkably well off treatment um, and are by all intents and purposes appearing completely normal. Um, I guess now that we've got the GS tablets available um, we have been using a little bit of a combination of injectable and oral therapy. Um, 
ideally we've been doing five days still of intravenous remdesivir um, and then potentially up to two weeks of subcut injections and then moving on to the GS tablets for kind of completing the course of the 12 weeks. But I think what we're probably going towards doing and um, might be our our kind of initial approach um, in the future is just doing our five days of remdesivir and then going straight onto the tablets because um, as you can imagine um, these a lot of these tiny kittens that you're injecting a reasonable volume subcut um, it can sting a little bit when it goes subcut as well and so um, owners might have some difficulties with those subcut injections um, and so actually being able to kind of reliably give them the the tablets um, seems to be seems to be beneficial um, and seems to be preferential for most owners Um, so I think in the future what we're probably moving to doing is maybe five days of injectable intravenous remdesivir and then on to the oral for the 12-week course. And and what we know of from our um, colleagues in Australia is that sometimes the reason that this treatment fails is because we don't have good compliance with the treatment so owners really struggling to give for example the remdesivir injection so having the kind of GS tablets really helps to, to tackle that front. And so, so this is like a, a massive like game changer, right? So we we've had a disease that 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 essentially kills cats in a, in a form that um, that is quite difficult to uh, to to diagnose. But we know that there's been no no treatment sort of available, and and now we've got something that seems to be almost as as, as you mentioned, so like a like a miracle sort of cure. Should should we be really really excited about this or or how what how do we how do you know how do we know sort of the the long-term sort of effects of this as in do we assume that patients or cats that have been infected with um uh, fip have this um i suppose can it can it remain with them you know like other other viral diseases and and just be in a, a quiescent state does it is it going to come back what do we what do we know about that i guess the short answer is we we don't know um i think we're very excited though um about this treatment um I mean, I I finished my residency in summer, spent six weeks off and came back and suddenly a fatal disease was seemingly curable, um, which was a little bit mad. Um, And so um, at the moment, um, kind of based on anecdotal evidence from Australia um, and from our own experience, we seem to be seeing response rates of about 80 to 90 percent. Um, the cases that we've seen so far, um, we're kind of just over 80%, but I think we probably are seeing the sickest portion um, of FIP kittens um, a lot of the time coming through the ECC service, um, potentially on oxygen therapy presses, really, really very sick kittens. And so still getting an over 80% response rate, we're quite astounded by. Um, and as I say in Australia, maybe even kind of pushing on 90% response rates. Um, there do seem to be there, there does seem to be a risk that some cats can relapse um, and that can either be within the initial stages of treatment um, or when you finish the course of um, treatment um, and that's where some of our dosing recommendations have come from um, 
I think initially they were using lower doses in Australia and quickly were seeing that quite a lot of cats were relapsing. Um, and so they've started using higher doses um, and are seeing much less relapses. Um, and so we've actually just gone with these higher doses from the outset. Um, and uh, because it's only been available for us for a relatively short period of time, I guess we we probably can't say enough um, what the kind of relapse rates are. Um, but touch wood so far, it doesn't seem to be kind of a, a really kind of big factor in the current population of cats that we've treated, um, if Jodie would agree with that. Yeah, and I think, so to put it into specific perspective we have now treated 17 cats at the RVC um, we've had 14 of those cats um, uh, be successfully treated we've had three cats euthanized within the first kind of uh, two of them within the first 48 hours of treatment and one within the first kind of week of treatment um, of those 14 cats that have survived we've had five of them complete an 84 day course and the others are still kind of in within treatment and um, those that have completed the course one of them is now three months post completion the others are kind of within kind of one to three months um, post completion none of them have had any signs of relapse and um, all of them have had complete um, kind of biochemical and clinical remission documented at the time of finishing um, treatment um, and as I say all of the others still receiving treatment are reported to be doing very very well indeed. I think those that um, were euthanized um, one of them had a concurrent AKI, one of them may have more been euthanized for financial reasons um, and then the final cat um, was probably in this kind of bracket of refractory disease or, or kind of relapsing so they showed initially really really good response um, and then kind of developed CNS signs if you like um, kind of within seven days of treatment and, and was euthanized at that point um, however that kind of comes into potentially this idea that some cats um, particularly with kind of CNS or dry FIP may need higher doses um, and as Sarah said that's something that we have kind of adapted our treatment regime to following kind of anecdotal uh, reports and advice from Australia. And, and can I ask with with the idea of a relapse do you have, have some of those cats have relapsed and I know this is all anecdotal been um, been given GS or rendemsphere again and, and seem to have a response to that or or have, have understandably um, clients sort of not wanted to pursue that or do, do we not know I suppose do we do we know whether the drug will be effective again I suppose is my yeah question. so in Australia what they were finding is that we're starting initially some of these cats on kind of what we would say like 10 to 15 mg per kg um, may have shown some initial response or may have shown kind of poor initial response and then what happened was they increased that remdesivir dose to kind of 20 mg per kg and they were seeing kind of significantly better response rates I guess we've only had one cat in terms of showing significant CNS relapse but we have had another cat um, very interestingly that was started on say 15 mg per kg um, started to show kind of recurrence of clinical signs that dose was increased to 20 mg per kg um, and started to improve showed a recurrence of clinical signs but very interestingly when that cat was switched on to GS tablets those clinical signs resolved and the cat's been doing very very well so I think it's going to be a continuous kind of um, trial and error 
and, and learning process in terms of how we treat these kind of refractory cases and, and whether kind of actually GS provides, uh, you know, an, an alternative to kind of remdesivir. We are seeing those cats not respond quite so well to remdesivir initially. And, uh, and, and I'm not a big fan of talking about um, money in, 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 in general on, on veterinary podcasts, but um, but I suppose that this drug is, is very expensive. So roughly at the moment, how, how much um, would a, a, a treatment course cost in the, in the UK for a cat? So it depends on a few different things, actually. Um, and as Sarah was talking about before, it all depends a little bit in terms of um, A, a, firstly, size of cat, B, whether they are presenting with kind of effusive, dry or CNS disease. Um, and thirdly, also what kind of therapy we are giving in terms of whether we are giving purely remdesivir, whether we're giving remdesivir and then switching to GS, because GS is actually quite significantly cheaper than remdesivir. So there are kind of lots of different ways where that kind of um, cost um uh, you know, can kind of vary depending on the disease process, but also kind of the treatment course that um, that we choose to use. Um, but I guess, Sarah, I don't know if you want to talk more about in terms of what kind of those costs would look like. Yeah, I think a rough kind of ballpark would be our kind of smallest kittens with as straightforward a disease as possible. So those tend to be the wet cases that we, we're able to get away with lower doses, so about 10 mg per kg. Um, treatment would maybe be in the region about three to four thousand pounds um for those smaller patients um but then if we're kind of talking about a maybe larger cat that has neurological disease that we might want to do um kind of much higher doses so 20 mg per kg that can kind of escalate into about 10 to 12,000 pounds for treatment um so yeah very dependent on the size of patient and what kind of form of disease we're we're dealing with I, I suppose it's like good to good to know isn't it and I think with all with all these um well not with all new treatments but but um like it's good that there's positive sort of results with with them and uh, and our experience and, and maybe uh with with Australia and other other countries that will will help um give people I suppose informed consent about about what is the likelihood of of um uh of a I suppose a successful outcome and I suppose the more we use it the more we're going to going to know that um and uh, and I suppose maybe um the more a drug is used then then that might bring the cost down as well I suppose so, so that's it's a very though it's very expensive that that I suppose that the the future um seems very different from the end of your residency Sarah with the treatment of FIP yeah absolutely and um I guess I kind of think about other treatments that we recommend for other diseases that are probably similar cost and might not get similar response rates so I think if I if I put myself in the position of thinking okay well if I if one of my cats um was, was affected would I would I go for it even if it was going to cost ten thousand pounds um I think I would somehow try and scrape it together um and so um but that is kind of based on the success rates that we seem to be seeing and the, the response rates and um I guess the other thing to to kind of note is that we don't really see seem to be seeing much in terms of side effects um, from these drugs. Um, so it seems to be a relatively benign treatment from that point of view. Again, we probably don't haven't 
used it enough to say that for sure um, and I'm sure there will be some side effects that come up with um, kind of as we gain more experience treat more cats um, in humans with remdesivir they seem to report kind of nausea and vomiting as um, quite a prominent um, side effect it's not something that we necessarily have noticed in our cats so far um, I think a lot of the time because these cats come in and they are already sick, they're already hyperexic, they probably end up on some antiemetics to start with anyway um, when they're getting that first five days of intravenous remdesivir. So maybe we are kind of prophylactically almost treating them for any side effects, but as I say it's not something that we've particularly noticed. One thing that we certainly have noticed is that the subcut injection of remdesivir it, it is painful um, and so some cats have needed kind of gabapentin to provide a little bit of sedation before giving the injection um, some cats do react um, when when the injection goes in um, and in some cats it's just not viable um, and so that's where the GS tablets have been an absolute lifeline really um, because it it provides us with that alternative route to giving it um, and um, I guess personally if um, I've got two cats if one of them um, had FIP I'd actually much rather give him subcut injections I would back myself to be able to give that once a day um, as opposed to a tablet so it's probably very much cat and owner dependent um, what is best um, there is maybe some suggestion from previous studies that if you skip doses um, there's maybe a chance of relapse so I think compliance is the real key um, and so far the all of our owners have um, preferentially decided to give tablets but as I say I think it wouldn't be out of the question that every now and then you get a, a cat that is impossible to tablet and in which case subcut injections might actually be easier. And, and can you just repeat to so, see so how long would a would a treatment um, be be sort of necessary at the, at, the, at the moment for the majority of cases? I'm just thinking about this compliance. So 12 weeks total um, so um, it, it, it's a big undertaking undertaking for the subcut injections for sure and as I say I, I, I'd much rather give that to one of my cats because um, he would be impossible to tablet but um, a daily subcut injection versus a daily um, tablet which um, the tablets seem relatively easy to break into quarters halves um, they seem relatively palatable we so far haven't really had any issues with compliance with those tablets um, obviously is much easier for most people um, to, to give their cats and and I suppose in, in, the, in the course of the conversation we sort of asked what, we sort of answered um, um, why other countries such as Australia and USA were were ahead of the UK is, is because they, they had access to this drug before is that is that kind of the the main reason yeah exactly certainly in australia um in america um uh, as far as i'm aware only access kind of experimentally um and um jody can correct me if i'm wrong but as far as i'm aware they still don't have access to um the kind of formulations that we have available for cats um in australia and the uk so um i think it's just as an australia and australia have had the remdesivir for think over two years now um and then the gs tablets they've 
had for probably about six months longer than we do. Um, so their experience very much more so with remdesivir injections. And so they're still in the relatively early stages of treatment with the tablets. But um, given they're half a year ahead of us, um, they seem to be finding that they're getting kind of similar response rates um, and um, feeling equally positive um, about the tablets as they have done about the injections. So this is all this is all very, very positive, isn't it? That's really, really great. And how have you have you both been um, getting a lot more um, requests for information about um, the treatments that are available from referring vets or just members of the public? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I mean, I think that at the moment in internal medicine, um, we're dealing with almost daily um, advice requests, maybe slowing down a little bit somewhat recently, um, maybe as kind of the word gets out a little bit more. Um, But there was a period kind of just before um, Christmas where it was almost daily and we were probably seeing two or three cats. Um, a week via the ECC service as well. Um, I think I've been kind of quite astounded with quite how many FIP kittens there are out there and that's probably um, a reflection on um, unfortunately how um, there probably were a lot out there beforehand um, that unfortunately were being put to sleep Um, and um, in a way maybe it's comforting to see that there are all of these cats out there that are now getting treatment that they wouldn't have been able to um, as of summer last year. And I think what's really um, remarkable as well is this fact that now, as Sarah was saying before, we have these incredibly sick kittens and yet we have seen them turn around and go on to do incredibly well. And I think getting kind of that word of mouth out there that even though these cats may be very, very sick, they can actually still have a very, very good chance of fully recovering. Um, and I think as that kind of word starts to to spread um then then yeah we'll see kind of more and more and, and even actually cats may be kind of being picked up earlier and treated earlier um so they are being kind of treated before they come to us so it's, it's, it's pretty amazing isn't it um all this is all this has happened i suppose that maybe an, another question might be like what what sort of apart from clinical um studies as in the, the best sort of treatment protocols for these cats and what to do if they relapse what 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 sort of studies or information would would you both like to to people to, to work out as well I think um given that it's so new at the moment I think what um probably everyone is keen for is just um a any retrospective study um, kind of documenting treatment success, the doses used, the likelihood of relapse, whether or not there are potentially any breeds that are more or less responsive to others. Um, anecdotally, we seem to be finding that ragdolls are maybe a bit trickier um, to treat and that seems to be backed up um, by colleagues in Australia. Um, so at the moment, I think um, I think just any um, kind of scientific data out there would be great. Um, but um, yeah, hopefully um, there there might be something kind of put together in the next six months to a year, even just based on kind of um, the initial experiences that we're having in this country so far. Um, and based on that, um, maybe we can kind of do further studies. I think um, there are kind of studies ongoing into pharmacokinetics and things like that um, um, over in Australia, which um, obviously be great. But I think at the moment, just something clinical um, to kind of get 
get the word out there um, is what's really needed. That sounds um, sounds sounds really good. What would you like to to know, Jodie? Um, so I guess kind of the other thing at the moment is that we're still very much doing kind of trial and error in terms of um, you know the combinations of treatment that we're using. For example, how long do we do remdesivir IV for? At what point do we switch onto GS tablets? And I think, as Sarah was saying, it'll be it'll be really nice to kind of know and have confirmation that actually kind of short remdesivir periods followed by GS tablets is um, equivocal to just remdesivir or, or kind of that combination. Um, I think that would be really, really good to know. It really is a game changer, isn't it? It's quite quite um, impressive how you know, yeah, as, as you said, it's something as as uh, I suppose as, as horrible as the global pandemic can have some um some some silver silver linings or some you know areas of of um uh, of, of improvement and and quite impressive as well that that's reached the 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 non-humans of the of the planet as well for a disease that was pretty much a, a death sentence so um so it's quite it is quite um amazing i was just trying to think if there's any other been any other massive leap in in feline medicine um, obviously understanding of diseases but this is this is a real big game changer isn't it oh absolutely and and i think you know you ask anyone that's witnessed one of these fip cats be treated with remdesivir or gf and i think you'll get the same response from everyone it's absolutely astonishing and our first case that we ever treated i remember um walking into kind of icu one evening and the cat was receiving its second dose of remdesivir it was completely recumbent wouldn't even lift its head was in an oxygen kennel and looked absolutely awful and I came in the following morning and this cat was sat up screaming at the front of the oxygen kennel for food like it was completely remarkable and you see that kind of again and again with every single case that we've had and yeah and I don't think anyone can quite quite believe it. And um, um, I suppose do, do you think there's anything else you'd like to uh, bring up in in relation to our sort of chat of FIP and treatments that are available? I think it's mainly just, um, yeah, trying to kind of get the word out there that this treatment is available, is seeming to be highly kind of efficacious um, and that um, if kind of people want advice um, on how to treat, what doses, um, how kind of the the intricacies of getting hold of the medication, um, then we're obviously more than happy to help. Um, and um, yeah, as Jodie said, they're incredibly rewarding cases. Um, um, and as you said, Dom, I, I can't kind of think of a, a kind of treatment certainly kind of in my veterinary career that we've had that seems to be such a game changer um so um yes would very much um encourage people to to look into its use if um if you've got any cases well thank you both um very much for your for your time um and um yeah yeah, thank you both sincerely very much it's really it's really cool and and maybe at some point we should we should follow up and um and and see in a a year's time whether we have um a bit more information that we can that we can inform people people about so um 
so we'll wrap it up there so so many thanks for your time again um and thank you for listening so don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device and that way you don't have to worry about missing a podcast if you leave a, a five-star review on apple podcast wherever you get this podcast that would be great and tell your friends vet friends anyone we're happy to listen to this podcast and we'll play some show notes in the rvc pages so just type in rvc clinical podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can either email um, at dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Till next time, bye-bye.